Well, good morning to you. You all right? Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, right in the middle. I've heard from many of you over the course of this series uh, that this has been an encouraging series to you. That was my hope going in after we spent so much time in Revelation about the end. I thought we need to spend some time about what we're supposed to do today. Uh, and, you know, Solomon has been working with us here through uh, six different chapters up to this point. Today, we hit the halfway point in the book. And uh, up to this point, Solomon has been dealing primarily with our ambition, with our drive and our desire to make something of our lives, uh, for us to seek out gain under the sun. And Solomon has been um, very particular in the ways in which he's forced us to deal with the philosophies of our lives and our hearts that we don't really want to talk about all that much. We'd really like to be successful. We'd really like to see our ambitions come to fruition and be realized, but we don't talk about that all that much. We all live with sort of a, uh, a low-grade ambition and desire for life to go well for us. Well, last week we looked at Solomon at the end, uh, really, of this spot in chapter 6 where we talked about money. Wasn't that encouraging? Those of you who are here, many of you weren't here last week, so you don't know how encouraging that message was. That's okay. Or you don't want to talk about it. Let's, can we move on from money and being so convicted, Steve? Uh, almost, kind of. We're almost there. Uh, we today are going to look at uh, somewhat of a complex passage that isn't so much logical as it is proverbial. Uh, if you have your finger there, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Do you see how chapter 7 starts? You see how it shifts into poetry? Flip back to chapter 1 real quick with me, and you'll see how the book of Ecclesiastes starts. Remember that poem? That the book of Ecclesiastes starts with chapter 1 about the, the vanity and the futility that is hardwired into creation. That creation itself doesn't gain. That the sun goes from east to west and east to west in the water cycle and up and down and up and down in the wind and north and south and north. And no, there's no gain. There's no advantage. There's no profit. That God has hardwired creation a certain way. Well, now flip back to chapter 7 and you'll see the text shifts again into a proverbial section that gives you some... Um, what he's going to do throughout this section here is he's going to begin, uh, like I said, this is the halfway point in the book, and two questions are going to characterize the remainder of the book. The first question we'll get into today, and it'll characterize chapters 7 and 8. The second question we'll get, in, uh, we'll get into when he get in, gets into chapter 9 and chapter 10, and then we'll move into 11 and 12, which will be kind of how we live and how we leave a book like this. But Solomon is going to take uh, chapter 7 after he introduces these two questions. And he's going to look at these proverbial realities in life. And it feels, like I said, almost illogical and disjointed in the ways that he, he reasons through because it's proverbial. The Proverbs are like that. The Proverbs make you deal with disparate realities. How I feel, how I see, how I think, how do I find wisdom? What are the priorities in my life that I ought to have? How do I deal with grief? What are the principles by which I can live a good and healthy and meaningful life? That's proverbial wisdom all throughout the scriptures. And as such, it has a tendency to generalize. So that it'll take general principles and help apply them to your life uh, so that you can live a life understanding what is good. The way that you interpret Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is by, through the repetition of words. You're going to have good or better mentioned 11 different times in a text like this. 
You're going to have wise or wisdom mentioned seven different times. The heart is going to be mentioned five times. Foolishness is going to be mentioned four times. And sorrow and anger will be mentioned three. So already with that summary of what we're about to find, you know that we're going to wade into very meaningful realities. So here's the question as we start. Uh, Are you wise? How do you know you're wise? What are the questions that you would reflect on to determine that the decisions you are making right now, this week, in the conversations you have, in the emotions that you feel, in the experiences that you go through, how would you know that you are navigating those wisely? Who wants to live their life as a fool? None of us do. We all want to approach life with a sense of wisdom. Being able to navigate the the gullies and the rivers and the peaks and the valleys of life as we go through them. We can't control them. But there is a way that you can navigate life wisely. And that's what Solomon is going to give to you here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and chapter 7. All right? So let's pray and ask God for his grace. Father, again, we lift up the churches and the Christians in Ukraine. We pray that you would do something as a result of this difficulty and hardship and tyranny that would point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the mystery of divine providence and sovereignty, we pray that you would restrain evil and that you would give grace to those Christians who are enduring this season of time in their life. Father, for us who are in this room here this morning, I pray for hearts of wisdom. That as as Moses said in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So Father, for these few minutes, would you uh, order our attention and our affections? Would you open our eyes and our hearts to understand things about ourselves and about you that perhaps we haven't considered before? For those who are in this room who are facing difficulties and uh, situations that cause them to be despairing of life, we pray that your spirit would minister to them, that the goodness of Christ as our good shepherd would care for us and tend to those wounds and difficulties and things that cause us to suffer and to struggle through the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the word that we see preached here this morning, would you do a work in us that is of eternal and lasting value and fruit? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start here right at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Look at 6 verse 10 with me. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Now, That's something that Solomon has kind of said already before in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us through the course of this this study, we saw that there's nothing new under the sun. He said that back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he said this, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So that as Solomon pivots now into a new section in the book, he leaves ambition and desire and envy and money and um, comparison and all of those things in the past, and he begins to turn his eye toward what is good. And he begins with this conviction that all that there is, if you go back to the book of Genesis, God begins creating and he calls uh, into being and into existence certain realities. 
time and forces and space and matter. And God calls light and he calls light good. Then he creates all vegetation and the rivers and the seasons and the stars and all of that. And all of creation, in a sense, is contained here in Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. It's all known by God. God knows all of what there is. God knows the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs, and he's aware of everything that is in his creation. Would you agree? God's not confused. There's not an area of creation that God goes, oh, I didn't get to that yet, and I'm not sure what's happening over there. God is completely sovereign and completely aware as of what is going on. Number two, Solomon says, it's known what man is. You remember back in Genesis 3, after uh, Adam and Eve fall. God curses all of creation. You remember that? He curses the livestock. He curses Satan. He curses the woman. Then he curses man. And he says, uh, by the sweat of your brow, you will make a living, essentially. But the earth will provide uh, frustration to you. Thorns and thistles, it will grow. And he says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are what? You know what he says? You are dust. Isn't that encouraging? Welcome to church. You are dust, and to dust you will return. So what is Solomon saying? God is the ultimate authority over all things in the the entirety of his creation. And two, it is known what man is. Now, have you been encouraged with the reality of who man is in the book of Ecclesiastes? Isn't mankind just a mess in this book? We're always comparing, we're always lusting, we always want for more, we're always looking to use others, we always want creation to work for us, Uh, we always want it to yield something more than it does, we're always angry in our situation, we're always vexed by our work, we can't see straight, we can't think straight, We're, we're exposed as kind of this raw nerve of foolishness. And Solomon goes, we know what man is. Peter in 1 Peter says that um, uh, all flesh is like grass. So you are dust, all flesh is like grass. It's known what man is. And that he is not able with, to dispute with one stronger than he. That's kind of a weird thing to say. You don't want to argue with somebody who's bigger, faster, and stronger than you, Amen. You don't want to. And in context, who is it? It's God. You can't argue with God. There are certain things about creation. We've seen this throughout the book. There are certain things about creation that you can't fix. There are certain realities that are baked in. What is lacking cannot be counted. What is crooked cannot be made straight. That there's a warp to life. There's a warp to creation where nothing quite works the way it's supposed to. And there's nothing you can do to argue with God about it, is there? Look at what verse 11 says. The more words, the more vanity. What do we like to do, though? We like to argue with God about it, don't we? God, I can't believe that this thing is happening in my life right now. And how in the world did you let this thing get into my mind? Were you not paying attention? Were you not standing guard at the door? Weren't you supposed to be guarding me and this situation came into my life? God, I really don't like this situation that's happening in my life right now. And what's Solomon say? Of the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? You remember the book of uh, Job? You know, after 38 chapters of these guys who are just 
talking and talking. And it's like 38 chapters of like overhearing a bad conversation at a coffee shop where you go like, I, I don't even, I can't even enjoy my coffee. There's so much happening right now in this conversation. I'm just overwhelmed. I gotta go. That's what Job like four to 38 is like. Now, here, the question is, what is the advantage to man? And when you handle what is happening here in this discussion between God and mankind, you think back to what Job is doing. At the end of the book of Job, do you notice how God doesn't make any apology? In fact, all the way through the scriptures, there's no place where God goes, my bad. That was, I, Job, I didn't consider it from that perspective. Job, I didn't look at it from where you were standing. And what you have here in the book of Job, and here even in Solomon's discussion, is that now when God speaks and man speaks, it's very, very vain. It's empty for man to begin to think that he can run the universe the way God does. So while at the end of the book of Job, you don't have God apologizing, you don't even have God explaining, hey, Job, this was a test, and you didn't know it was a test, and gosh, I'm so sorry I had to put you through that stuff, and man, did you know, to Satan, he was talking, and I had to go back, and we Satan, and we had this thing, and I just let him go, but I didn't, I didn't let him kill you. You kept your wife, don't worry about it. Lost your kids, get your, get your wife, your wife's mad, don't worry about that either. You don't get any of that. You only get God going, gird up your loins. We're going to have a conversation. And God overwhelms Job with who he is. Making Job aware. Here's what Job says in Job 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job says this, I'd heard of you by the hearing of my eye, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing Solomon is saying. It's no advantage to argue with God. Would you agree with that? You know that. But how often do our prayers turn into complaining and arguing and listing and demanding of answers? So we start in our search for wisdom in this place where we recognize what Solomon has been telling us. We are man and he is God. Now, in light of God's sovereignty, God's providential ordering of all creation... In light of the fact of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where God has, Solomon has told us that God has put eternity in the hearts of man, yet man cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end, how are we supposed to live? Haven't you, don't you want that answer? Okay, I get it. My heart is captivated by things on earth. I get that I can't understand eternity. I understand that there are things about this world that I can't peer into and I will never understand. But now what? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to engage Monday morning with the reality of what I'm learning in the book of Ecclesiastes? Here's what he says. Verse 12. For who knows... What is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life with which he passes like a shadow? There's your first question. 
Who knows what is good for men? What does it look like to live a life that you would consider good? Commentators think now that Solomon turns from this ambitious approach to life where he achieves and acquires to now the good life. What does it look like for a man or a woman to live with a sense of wisdom? How do I engage life well? We know that wisdom doesn't ultimately secure anything for us because Solomon has already said the wise and the fool, they both go into the ground. But there is a way that Solomon has said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 that the wise have their eyes in their head. That's how I'd like to be described. How's Steve? He's real wise. He has both eyes in his head. But the fool walks in darkness. So what does it look like to be wise? Here's the second question that Solomon asks. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now that may be after death, but since Solomon has restricted his purview and his philosophy to only things that you can interpret and understand by your five senses, the idea here is probably not eternity, but that you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. You got plans for vacation this summer? Could anything possibly perhaps happen that could create a dynamic in which those plans don't come to fruition? So this has been his point. God is completely sovereign from the beginning to the end, and God is providentially sovereign through all of the variabilities of human life. And you don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. You don't know if you make it to lunch. You don't know what's going to happen in the next three hours. So those realities, what is good and how do I find out what's going to happen after me, are going to be answered as he goes through the next four chapters. But the first one, what is good, begins here in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1. You with me so far? You tracking? Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1. Watch what he does here. A good name is better than precious ointment. That's a great tattoo. You're looking for a tattoo? That's a good one right there. Who uses the word ointment? That sounds weird. Sounds like you have an affliction that we don't want to talk about. A good name is better than precious ointment. You got a cross-reference there that says Proverbs 22? Here's what Proverbs 22 says. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. So here's where Solomon starts. What's a good name have to do with? It has to do with your reputation. Who you are. And there's a value to it. In the same idea that Proverbs 22 talks about a good name is worth more than money, he says now a good name is worth more than something, that an ointment that can treat a medical condition you have. That's how important a good name is. You ever consider your reputation? You ever consider how you are viewed in the eyes of others? Now, the next thing he says is interesting. Look at the next thing he says. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Well, what's that mean? When do we know who you are? We know when you, how do you get a good reputation? Here's the question. How do, how do you get a good name? By disciplined practice over a lifetime earns you a reputation. And Solomon says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Why? The day of birth, everything's ahead. The day of death, everything's behind. That the discussion is over. Your reputation has been formed. The value of who you are is condensed into a little bitty dash between two numbers and about 12 words on the tombstone. 
That's the essence of the individual. So Solomon starts here talking about what is good. Well, what's good to have? It's good to have a good reputation. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Look at verse 2. Now, when he says in verse 1, reputation and the day of death. Now, the day of death, this idea of the finality of life is going to consistently move throughout this passage. So it's as if he sums up a man, a man for who he is and his reputation in the good name that he has built for himself. And he puts it right next to the day of death as if to hold those two realities in tension. Because we all want to have a good reputation, we all want to have a good name, but not many of us think about the day of our death. Maybe you've thought about it more over the course of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll admit, I, I have recognized this in myself. For a few years ago, I began to recognize that a lot of the decisions that I made were really out of a heart where I looked at life in a perspective of sort of existing in an eternal present where at the urgency of my, or my decision-making was essentially controlled by the urgency of the situations I faced. Now, as I've gotten older and I've moved into my 40s, I am recognizing that the sequence of decisions that I have made over the past two decades are now creating and forming and forming fruit in my life. Anybody else feel that? Anybody else recognize that? that now there are some decisions that were made in my 20s that now affect my life in my 40s. There were decisions that I made in my 30s that now affect my life in my 40s. And as I have lived longer, I begin to recognize that my life is filled with these sequences and these moments all leading up to the fact that one day, I will die. One day, you will die. And even saying that out loud feels really awkward in the church, doesn't it? So that is what Solomon is pressing into your consciousness right here. Look at verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Where's the house of mourning? It's probably, in light of what Solomon has just said, it's the funeral home. It's better, and who likes going to funerals? Why are they so poorly attended most of the time? Because not a lot of people want to go there. Not a lot of people want to reckon with the reality that one day my life and my body will be put into a box and into the ground. But Solomon, now in his quest for what is good for man, begins with this reality and says it's better, it's good for us to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Who wants to go to a wake? Wouldn't you rather go to a barbecue? That's his point. For this is the end of all mankind. What did he just say? The day of death is better than the day of birth. Here, he says, go to a funeral so that you can understand that this is where you're headed. It's, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So the thing that you're going to see throughout this passage is this contrast between wise and foolish. Wise and foolish. A good name, precious ointment. Day of death, better than the day of birth. Better go to a funeral than to go to the house of feasting. For the living will take it to heart. Let's ask together, what are the things that order your decision making? 
We, there could be, we could do this for an hour. There's lots of things, aren't there? There are relationships, there's fear of man, there's financial prosperity, there's financial uh, difficulty, there's struggles and seasons and uh, ups and downs that have a tendency to reorder the decision-making that I make. And Solomon begins here in this place saying that the wise will order their life according to the reality of their death. He goes on. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. See, we live in a culture that values the young over the old, right? We live in a culture that values the visible rather than the invisible. We live in a culture that values what is comfortable rather than what is inevitable. We live in a culture that is consumed with activity and ambition and desire. That's been all of chapters one through six. And gain and finance and wealth and accomplishment and reputation. You feel that out there? When you go out into the world, you feel the draw? But there are very few commercials about the certainty of death. We like activity, we don't like the certainty of our death. That in a hundred years, none of us are here. This pulpit is empty and somebody else better be up here preaching the word of God, right? It's coming for all of us. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. What does that mean? It means the wise understand the lessons they ought to take away from the funeral. The wise understand that it is good to grieve. What did Jesus do when he came to the tomb of Lazarus? He was grieved. He wept. He felt the sorrow of life in a sinful and broken world. But when you leave a funeral, you begin to wrestle on the inside that there are certain things that I'm giving my life and my time to that I ought not be giving my life and my time to, right? That life gets real serious. If you had six weeks to live, all of a sudden your priorities would start to get reordered on that list, huh? And while we experience sorrow in a sinful and broken world, the Christian can take lessons from it so that their heart is made glad. Their heart can prioritize rightly and value the right things. Let me, let me, I'll test this. Raise your hand if you had something difficult in your life shape who you are today. Look around. The rest of you are under 25. Am I right, old guys? See? You had something hard. It wasn't good. It wasn't fun. I'm sorry, it wasn't fun, but it was good for you, wasn't it? Look at verse four. So the wise, let's just, if you want to take a piece of paper, fold it down the middle, contrast the wise and the foolish in a passage like this. What do the wise do? They think about their experiences rightly. They meditate on the right things. They're able to prioritize the right things in life. Look at four. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. 
The wise live with a gravity to them. Do you, let's, let's test this out. You have people in your life that you wouldn't go to for counsel because they don't take life seriously. You have people that you know that you go, man, they're fun at a party. But man, if I'm suffering and there's difficulty and I'm wrestling with the reality of what happens in my future, if I'm wrestling with the reality of the kind of reputation I'm building for myself, I don't want an idiot giving me counsel. I want somebody who is wise. I want somebody who's wrestled with the deep things in life, who has a gravitas to them and is able to cut away the fluff and get to the heart of the issue. Solomon says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. You learn good stuff at a funeral. But the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Verse five, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Do you see how this text is working? You see the theme that is tracking all throughout it? That the wise can move into difficult, sorrowful experiences and take lessons away. That the wise can move into difficult, hard, heart-wrenching scenarios and leave with hearts that are prioritized on the right thing. That the wise now move into conversations in a way that is healthy to their lives. Look at verse five. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Wouldn't you love to go to a concert rather than sit down and have coffee with somebody who's gonna rebuke you? Wouldn't you put off that coffee for a while? Put off that conversation for a while because you know it's going to be a difficult conversation. You know there are going to be things said that you don't really want to hear about yourself. You're going to have to confront some things about patterns in your life where you, in context, what is the rebuke of the wise doing? In context, the rebuke of the wise is forcing you to face some realities about your life that are certain. That's a good counselor, amen? Don't you, you know, Jesus, when he gives counsel, cuts right to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? He has no pleasantries in the conversation. How are you? How are you good? The weather good? Yeah, pollen's bad. You don't have, like, there's not that verse in your Bible. But Jesus cuts to the heart of it. Nicodemus comes and goes, hey, I hear you're a good teacher. And he goes, uh, if you want to live, if you want a man of something, something born again. Right? That's how Jesus, he cuts right to the heart of what's going on. I mean, listen to the words that have been mentioned so far. Feasting. Who doesn't, I remember I've been talking about steak for, I mean, six weeks. Laughter. Anybody like laughing? Put on a good show, something you laugh at. You got a favorite show that you binge that makes you laugh. Mirth. You don't even know what mirth is. Sounds like Santa Claus. I don't know. I'd like some. Good songs. You like singing loud in the car? Ever get caught singing loud in the car? Contrasted. Here's what's been associated with the wise. Mourning, sorrow, sadness, rebuke. How do you want to spend Friday night? 
Do you want to wrestle about the things that pertain to the certainty of your death? No, I want to put on a 28-minute show and fall asleep on the couch. We tried to watch a show with the kids that lasted like 18 minutes Friday night. And all my kids laughed at me. What does this tell about ourselves? This thing starts with, we know what man is. What does it tell us by this point in the description of Solomon's Proverbs? It tells us that we're far more interested in being happy than we are being wise. Doesn't it? Isn't that disappointing? That we all seek pleasure. We all want things that are fun. Don't be so serious. I want more frivolity and laughter and mirth and joy and pleasantness, but that's not how you build a reputation. That's not how you build a good name. The wise are able to evaluate the difficulty of life under the sun and prioritize the right things. Isn't that what we're doing in our parenting? We all know the best way to parent is to give your kids whatever they want and the most amount of sugar. No. Because our ambition for our kids, I'm sorry, Family Sunday kids, you're in the room, the ambition in the heart of your parents for you is not that you would be happy. It's that you would be wise. And we've got to wrestle with that in our own hearts because a lot of times as parents, don't we want to be happy and not have the hard work of the discipline conversation to help our children think, to form the way that their values and their words, and I do this with my kids. I tell my kids, leaders are fast. And I use it as an acronym. I say leaders lead their feelings, their actions, their speech, and their thinking. And if you quiz them and you come down, they would tell you that very same thing. Because we want character in our children. They don't have to be happy to a degree. <laughs> Can we edit that, Kenning? I don't know. Don't, don't like, don't just take that, okay? We want to make them great. We want them to grow into men and women of God who wrestle with true and deep and lasting realities. Amen, dads? That's what we want for our kids. I don't want to raise a fool. I want to raise wise young ladies and one young man. So does it, let's ask, let's, let's be honest with now. When I go into conversations with other people and I'm asking them about significant realities in my life, am I willing to listen to a rebuke? Am I willing to be challenged or do I go to people who will already and immediately think shallowly about life and affirm my convictions already? Who will go, man, you're, you're brilliant. I don't care what you're doing. I'm not even sure what you're doing, but you're, just, you're doing great. How are we ever going to grow to be mature and to be wise if we're not willing to have honest, upfront, grown-up conversations with one another? Now, look how he goes on. That's enough on that. That's too convicting. Verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot 
So is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Now, I don't start a lot of fires. I am more ruggedly indoorsy. So I had to look this up. Some of you may start fires. And I found out that when you start fires, you don't use thorns. You want long burning things, right? You don't want to start a fire with brush. It's okay to get it going, but it dies quick. Here's the point. Here's what one commentator says. When you burn thorns, you don't get a lot of heat. You don't get a good fire, but you get a whole lot of noise. So is the laughter of the fools. Did you have fun last night? Man, we had a blast. Do you remember it? Ah, some of it. Were you impacted in any way to reorder your attention and your affections in your life that you might present to God a heart of wisdom in this day? Not really, but the game was on. But we talked a lot. And if you build a life on shallow, happy, laughter, mirth, feasting experiences, what you are building is a shallowness into your life over the course of your 70 years. It's inevitable. Now, you thought we were done with money? Look at verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Now, it's probably here, uh, oppression had to do in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 with money, didn't it? The almighty dollar drove our oppression of one another, that we use people rather than serving people. And Solomon throws this in here in verse 7, because if you're starting to order your life according to the day of your death, to the reality of the most important things in your life, if you begin to order your life around the certainty that one day you will stop breathing, then there are still temptations along the way. And remarkably, the temptations that greet the wise and that drive them into madness is not oppression being done to them, but leveraging their oppression against others. It's exhortation, uh, not ex ex exhortation, it's um, extortion. That's what's in mind here, that this extortion will drive the wise into folly, will drive the wise into foolishness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. What's the temptation even for a wise individual? It's to get sideswiped by a love of money. Still with me? He's still tracking. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of the thing than its beginning. Now we're starting to bring together this, this whole passage is starting to compress down into what it means to be wise. Better than the end of a thing than its beginning. Now we said that already at the outset of this passage, didn't we? That the day of death is better than the day of birth. But this has to do with our journey through life. It has to do with how we experience and process life as it comes to us. Look at what it says, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What's hindsight? 2020. I got a lot of situations in my life that I, when I look back on them, I could give myself great counsel 10 years ago. Don't you have that? Where you go, man, if I only knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have made the decisions that I made then. And Solomon says, the end of a thing is better than the beginning because it requires something of you to be on the journey. It requires something of you to see it through. And he says, literally, better is length of spirit than height of spirit. You ever face situation? Well, let's just, I'll, I'll make you feel convicted in a second. Look at nine. 
be not quick in your spirit to become angry. So we have a spirit here that is both, uh, it's better to be long of spirit, have some perseverance to you, have some wait and see how this situation is going to turn out, rather than being proud and quick, being high and short. Because what happens? It's better to be, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry lodges in the hearts of fools. So what does it mean a wise person does? A wise person recognizes that life has seasons. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 3? There's a time to build up, there's a time to tear down, that there's a sovereignty and providential variability to our lives that requires something of us. So that for you and I to present to God a heart of wisdom, there are certain seasons that will come into your life that will require you and develop in you a patience to see what is God doing in this situation? Don't you hate that question? What do you want when difficult things come into your life? I want it to be resolved as fast as possible by brute strength and because of my anger. Me too. And Solomon says the foolish person has anger that is stuck in their spirit. It's like they're stuck in fifth gear. They can't get out. Their inner person is just boiling all the time. Better to be patient. So what's a fool look like? He's proud, he's angry, he's rash. What's a wise person look like? They're patient, they're waiting, they're examining. What are the priorities? What are the certainties? How do I live in light of those things? Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? You ever read, we went through as a staff, Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 is about the story of Moses dealing with the grumbling people of Israel. And in Numbers chapter 11, the people of Israel are all complaining. They do this all throughout the book of Numbers, all throughout their desert wanderings. They're always angry and complaining and bitter about what God has done. They're complaining about the manna, and they have this like selective memory when it comes to their time in Egypt. And in Numbers 11, it says they go, oh, we sat by these pots of meat and had leeks and onions and garlic, and it was amazing. It was all hot food, and all we have here in the desert is this miracle food. All we have is this manna that's provisioned from God himself that has sustained us through our desert wanderings. But you know what I really loved? Burgers. You know what I really loved? Soup, onions, leeks. It was so good being in Egypt. And nobody has the awareness to go, "Uh, weren't we slaves? Were you a slave? I was pretty sure. That we all, this is, gosh, this is so common. Don't you, Solomon says, we have this way of having selective memory about seasons in our life, don't we? And what this creates in us is this kind of pervasive bitterness about our lives that we're totally unable to give thanks for the variability in changing seasons. And all we do is live a life of comparison. Do you know what was better? The 80s. (laughs) Here we are, 2022. Music. Gosh, we had real music in the 80s. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Have you noticed where the wise are looking in this passage? Where are the wise looking? They're looking forward. To what? 
to the day when I get put in the box. They have a, a, a clarity about the future of their life that is leading them somewhere. But the fools are always looking backward. They're looking for joy today, and they're always looking backward going, that wasn't as good as those days. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now look at 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Is it good to have money? Sure, it's good to have money. Can money prevent some difficult things? Can money solve some things in your life? Absolutely. And Solomon says that wisdom is like that. That it preserves and protects. That it allows you to navigate. That that idea of protection is literally shade. That having your eyes focused on the right things allows you to eliminate a lot of the chaff, a lot of the fluff in life. It allows you to put one foot in front of the other with courage and resilience and patience and wisdom and insight as you begin to navigate life under the sun. Now, let's summarize. What have the wise been doing? The wise can understand right experiences, the experiences that matter. The wise can prioritize the right things in their life. The wise have seasoned speech, both to speak what is true and to listen and to make adjustments in their life when they hear counsel and wisdom that prioritizes the right things in their life. The wise have self-control. They have an emotional sobriety to them. They're able to examine their feelings in light of truth and say, this is a season where I need to wait and see what God is doing. I don't need to be rash with my mouth. I don't need to be bitter. I don't need to be comparing what is going on to what used to be going on. That they have a right perspective. Now, watch how this passage closes. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? What's the answer? Nobody. Nobody can. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Connect that to verse 13 and what do you have? You've got seasons that are determined by God. You've got times that are determined by God. That God in his sovereignty and his providence hasn't left us to anarchy. But he's left us to a sovereign and providential variability to our lives. Our lives have seasons. Our lives have changes. Our lives have ups and downs. And consider that God has not left the control room just because you're in a difficult season right now. Amen? God has not abandoned his authority and his rulership of the universe just because it's difficult for you right now. And you may be facing days of adversity. Isn't that encouraging? God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be made, uh, that will be after him. Here's the point. Life doesn't work on your terms. I tell my kids this often. You are not in charge of somebody else's mouth. You are not in charge of somebody else's attitude. You are in charge of your mouth and you are in charge of your attitude, right? See, they all nodded heartily like good, obedient children. 
See, I can't control the times. I can control how I respond to them. Amen? I can control how I respond to them. And the ambition for those who understand that one day I will be put in a box is now to consider the way that I respond to the variability and changing seasons of life. Now, let me bring this home. This passage is kind of weird in the way it ends because you don't like to hear from people. I don't parent my kids this way. Go out and obey because one day you'll die and you can't control life anyway, right? Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange in the way that Solomon ends? You're going to die, live wise, you can't control life anyway, just consider that God is in charge of everything. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? Here's what I think we do with that. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the anchored certainty is around the inevitability of death, right? That Solomon continues slapping you in the face with the fact that wise or foolish, we all die. Rich or poor, we all die. Big reputation or little reputation, we all die. How much stuff do you have? It don't matter because the person who's poor just like uh, will end up in the grave just like you. So that in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's certainty about our death works backwards into our life to help us be able to make uh, wise decisions. In fact, from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 forward, we're all facing the reality of death. So we have to wrestle We have to ask questions of one another. Am I living in light of the day of my death? That's an important question for us to wrestle with. Am I making decisions in the ways and conversations and things that I ponder on that will matter at my funeral? Now, when you step out, this is where, gosh, I want you to get this. When you step out of the book of Ecclesiastes and you move into the New Testament, the motivation of death really can't do it for us. It can't make you wise. It can make you aware to a certain degree that there are things that you ought to do and ought not to do. But when you move into the New Testament, the wisdom of the people of God is rooted not in their future and imminent death, but in the certainty of Jesus Christ's resurrection. I'm going to say that again. Because you can read Ecclesiastes and go, gosh, I should order my life because one day I'm going to die. But the reality in the New Testament is that every single New Testament writer appeals to what Christ has done through his death and burial and resurrection to now reorder the way that we live our lives. Because now, because Jesus is alive, I have no more fear of death. So that I am freed up from this desperate attempt in my life to know that I better squeeze everything out of life before I die. I better leave a good name and a good legacy because of the fear of death. But Hebrews says that he has broken the power of fear of death so that I never have to fear it. And when you step into the New Testament reality, when you step into the things that we have sung about this morning, then we recognize that Jesus' resurrection has the last say over a Christian's life, not death. That's the reality. So of course, listen, God in this passage is distant 
is hard to understand. We don't know what he's doing. He makes variable decisions that we have to react and respond to. But when you step into the New Testament reality and we see Jesus Christ who goes to parties and Jesus Christ who walks among the sick and the lame and the blind and the brokenness of this world, when you see Jesus Christ and he's at a funeral and he weeps and he tells the people there, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not perish. He will never see death. That death will not have the last word in his life. That we are controlled by the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed to man to die and then to face judgment. This is, you know, this is one of the driving things for me in Christian ministry. This is why when I stand up and I preach, I don't give you 28 reasons why your boss is a grump and 38 ways in which you can have a better life. A church loses its impact in a culture, in a world, and in the hearts of the people it ministers to if it ignores the severity of the certainty we have about life and death realities. I know for sure you will die and you will spend eternity either in the presence of Jesus Christ or tormented for all time in hell. And if a church moves off of that and becomes about frivolity and laughter and feasting and enjoyment and good experiences and fog and lasers, we neglect the duty we have as Christians to wrestle with the most important things. You will die. You are a sinner. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ, you have no forgiveness. The justice of God fell on him. Turn and believe in him. Live and walk in light of his resurrection and his love and care and concern for you. Trust that he's the good shepherd. He will never leave you, never forsake you. Amen? Goodness. Okay, you with me. Whew. The greatest motivation for change in your life is not death. The greatest motivation for change in your life is that Jesus loves you and he's risen from the dead. Father, that this would be true of us as a church. We acknowledge that one day we will die. We acknowledge that we are sinners in need of the grace and forgiveness and redemption that is found alone in Jesus Christ. May this be our song in this city. Would the glory of Jesus, the certainty of forgiveness of sins, the certainty of resurrection, control us and guide us as we preach and teach and encourage and counsel and bear with one another in the storms of life. Would we speak often of Jesus? Would we encourage one another that he is alive, that he hasn't left us, he hasn't forsaken us, that he has trustworthy words that we need to hear? And would we live and order our attention, our affections, and our lives in light of that reality? It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.